while they're getting my new batteries, I'll let you start turning to the book of Habakkuk. It's in the Old Testament. If you find Daniel, keep going. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, and then Habakkuk. And I'm going to announce that now because I know it's not a book to which we turn very often in the Old Testament. For some reason we, I think, neglect too often the minor prophets in our preaching. <clears throat> but they're called minor prophets not because there is a lesser message. They're called minor prophets because they're shorter books. So that instead of calling them long prophets and short prophets, they called them major prophets and minor prophets. I'm not sure which one would be taken more offensively, but unfortunately that has developed into what I believe is a thought pattern of, well, they're just minor prophets, therefore they're not important. That by no means is the case. Now I understand we were in a study, a topical study, looking at, at what cost and looking at decisions people have made. However, I want to start another expository study in the book of Habakkuk. And I've taken the title of this series from chapter 3, where in verse 2 this says, O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. And so we're going to start today looking at chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. But let me set a little bit of context because when we think of the prophet Habakkuk, how many automatically understand the context of when he was ministering? And it's okay, because if you don't know, because most don't, okay? And I had to go back and study it myself, unfortunately. So it's not something we keep in the forefront of our minds all the time. But you remember, initially there was one kingdom under Saul and under David and under uh, Solomon... And then after Solomon's reign, it divided into the northern kingdom. We called it Israel. And then we had the southern kingdom called Judah. Both were warned of God many times. If we read through the book of Deuteronomy, we see where God promised if Israel were to follow God, God would continue blessing. But if Israel were to rebel against God, God would send judgment. Well, Israel did rebel against God. Israel and Judah both rebelled against God. And God sent prophets to warn them over and over again. But they continued to live in their rebellion. And in the 700 BC, around 724, Sargon of um, Assyria took the northern kingdom. Finally, the northern kingdom was completely destroyed and taken captive. So they're already gone. The time that Habakkuk is penning these words is around 609 to 607 B.C. Now this is still in the southern kingdom, in Judah, and they're not taken captive yet. You remember, now Assyria is gone. We have the Babylonian kingdom at this time, and the siege and the, the um, destruction of the southern kingdom really was in three parts. There was 605 B.C. when the princes and the chief were taken. That's when Daniel was taken captive. And then you had another uh, siege on, on um, Judah in 597 BC. And that's when Ezekiel was taken captive. And then Jerusalem and the rest of Judah was destroyed in fi um, 586 BC is when 
Nebuchadnezzar finished destroying all of the southern kingdom. Now, that is going to be on a quiz at the end of the message, so I hope you wrote all those down. All right, no, it was not. I know it sounds like just a bunch of dates, but understand these are actual historical events that did happen in time. And we're talking B.C., so the clock is running backwards, okay, not counting forward. That's why. So those are the time frames of what's going on. So this is 609 to 607. So again, remember the first captivity is 605. So we're only a few years before that. And Habakkuk looks around him and he sees the children of Judah still living in wickedness and not repenting and turning to God. Now you think that for the last 100 years, they realize Israel is gone. Israel was taken captive. Everything in the northern kingdom is completely gone. And it was because they refused to repent and turn to God. You think Judah would after a while say, hey, you know what? We probably should stop living so wickedly. We should, also, we should turn back to God unless something happens to us. And by this time, the prophets are already warning them judgment is coming. But we see them still refusing to turn back to God. Because they lived as though it couldn't happen to them. So Habakkuk is troubled by the wickedness around him, and that's where we begin here this morning. Now Jeremiah, another prophet who was contemporary with Habakkuk, they lived the same time, wrote in Lamentations 3.51, he wrote, Mine eye affecteth mine heart because of the daughters of my city. When Jeremiah saw the same conditions that Habakkuk saw, he also was crying over the condition of his nation. These two men see the wickedness in their nation, and they're crying out, why is our nation not turning back to God? We know Jeremiah is the weeping prophet, because as he saw the condition of his people, it literally brought tears to his eyes many times. As he saw God's hand of mercy still being extended to them, and yet Judah still living in wickedness and still turning their back on God, saying, it's not going to happen to us. God won't send judgment on us. We're God's people. It breaks the heart of the prophet. God has really richly blessed us as a nation, has he not? God has richly blessed us as a church and as individuals. But when we see the sin in our lives and the sin in our nation... And the sin in the church today, does it break our hearts as we see these prophets having broken hearts? It should bring us to tears that we'd respond to the grace of God and repent. So we're going to look at the first four verses in a message I've titled Habakkuk's Cry. So by now, hopefully you found Habakkuk. And if you would, please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. We're going to look at the first four verses this morning. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1. The burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. O Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear? Even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save. Why dost thou show me iniquity, and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that raise up strife and contention. Therefore the law is slacked, and judgment doth never go forth, for the wicked doth compass about the righteous. Therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. So 
So four points I want us to see this morning. First, I want us to see the cry over the national sins in verse 2. His cry over the national sins. Secondly, we're going to observe the cry over the church's sins. Now, I understand Israel is not the church. The church is not a replacement of Israel, but I'm going to show you the principles, and we'll talk more about that. And then, thirdly, the confession of personal sin, and we'll end with the consequences of sin. You and I must be, as Jeremiah, allowing the, our eye to affect our heart. Let us bow for a word of prayer. Father, I pray as we examine this passage this morning again, Lord, we would understand the need of our turning, repenting, and Lord, a coming back to you, that you could truly revive us. Father, we need a revival in our land. But more importantly, Lord, we need a revival in our hearts. May we not grow cold in our love toward you, but may it burn within us. And Lord, I pray for each Christian today that we would be truly revived. And I pray again, if there is one here that does not know Christ as Savior, Lord, not for a revival, but for life to begin, the eternal life to begin in them as they receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. So Lord, I pray that you'd remove distractions and help the message to be clear and guide now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Habakkuk cries in verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear? Even cry out unto, unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save. You ever feel like God's not answering your prayers? You ever feel like you're praying, and it's like, God, where are you? Habakkuk is at that point. He's like, God, I've been crying out. I've been crying about the violence of our nation. I've been, t I've been praying and asking for us to repent and come back to you. But Lord, it's still continuing. Here we are still going. Let me tell you, Christian, let's continue to be faithful in prayer. You know, there's some people that I've been praying to that they would get saved. I've been praying for for years. There's been situations I've been praying for for years. But we need to be diligent and faithful in continuing to pray. But I want us to see these prophets didn't have a them and us mentality when it came to their own nation. Often we talk about our nation and we talk about the sins of them. You know, we talk about our nation and abortion, our nation and gay marriage, and our nation and this, as if it's them. But you understand when the prophets would pray, they would use the uh, pronoun we. Hold your place here in Habakkuk and please don't lose it because it'll take you another five minutes to find it. Let's go back just a few books to the book of Daniel. In chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, please. Should be just a few pages back from where you were in Habakkuk in the book of Daniel. In chapter 9, I want us to see something here. In verse 3, Daniel speaking says, And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed unto the Lord my God, and I made my confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments, we have sinned and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled, even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. Neither have we hearkened unto thy servants, the prophets, which spake in thy name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and to all the people of the land. 
O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto thee, but unto us confusion of faces as it is this day, to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel that are near and that are far off through all the countries where thou hast driven them because of their trespass that they have trespassed against thee. O Lord, to us belongeth confusion of face to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against thee. To the Lord our God belongeth mercies and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. Neither have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Now I find that very interesting. This is a prayer of Daniel. Daniel, who was taken captive as a young man, who was made a eunuch, who still served God, who still loved God, to the point that he said to the captain of the eunuchs, I don't want to eat that meat that's been offered to idols. Just give me some vegetables and I'll be happy with that meal. And Daniel, who stood before kings, Daniel, who was used greatly of God to say, I'm going to continue to be faithful and praying to God, was cast into a lion's den. This Daniel, who we know to be a righteous man, when he's praying about the sins of his people, says, we have sinned against you. We have rebelled against you. Now, I believe that's important, Christian, in our prayer, because we are part of this nation, and this nation's sin is part of our sin. Does that make sense to you? So when we pray to God, we need to confess our sin of abortion. We need to confess our sin of homosexuality. We need to confess our sin. Do you follow what I'm saying? Especially in the United States of America, where we have a representative form of government and the highest office in our land is we the people, then we the people must take the blame because we the people have allowed it to happen. And so I believe when we look at the example, the Old Testament prophets and their prayers of their national sin, it wasn't they, it was we. And until we become before God with an attitude of, we have sinned before you, a holy God, I wonder why would he be obligated to answer? But what our IAC should affect our hearts. Again, the prophet Jeremiah in Lamentations 3.51, Mine eye affecteth my heart because of the daughters of my city. When Jeremiah looked around the wickedness, it brought tears to his eyes. May I say, when we hear people saying, it's my right to murder this unborn child, does that bring tears to your eyes? When we hear people say, I don't care what God has designed, I want to be happy, and my happiness matters more than following God's design. So if I want to be married to another man, I should be allowed to be married to another man. Does that bring tears to your eyes? Folks, I sometimes feel that our eyes are too dry over the sins of our nation. You know, we sing the song asking for God's grace on, his nation, on our nation, but I think it's time we start asking God's mercy on our nation. You see, Habakkuk seems to have this attitude of, God, why are you letting this continue? Why don't you just kill them all? How often have you felt that way? Lord, we'd be better off if you just killed them all. We've all been guilty of thinking that, have we not? Well, that's where Habakkuk finds himself. But we find Jeremiah on his knees, crying out to God, saying, God, we need your mercy. God, be merciful to us. 
You see, we make the choice whether to become angry and complain about the situation. That's where many do. You don't believe that? Go on Facebook. Everybody's angry and everybody's complaining. Do you realize posting it on Facebook has accomplished nothing? And venting on Facebook has accomplished nothing. As a matter of fact, somebody's going to make a comment that you didn't understand, and all it's going to do is make you even more angry than what you already were. Stop wasting your time. Or do we make the choice to become angry and then do something about it? Here's one of my favorite. Well, we got to do something. Okay, well, that solution is a bad solution. Well, it's better than no solution. That's part of the reason why we're in the mess we're in is because somebody had to do something, and so they go and do something, and the something was worse than nothing, and now we end up with the horrible situation in which we're in. Right? Okay, is it a horrible thing that somebody takes a firearm into a building and shoots other people? Yes. But is putting more regulations on the gun going to fix it? No. Why? Because you do realize there's already plenty of laws, and criminals don't follow the law, so more laws is not going to fix it. Or do we make the choice to repent to God and ask Him for mercy? Mercy on our nation, mercy on ourselves, and grace and strength to make the change. What did Habakkuk see? Look again in verse 2. I cry out unto thee of violence. Oh, we see violence today in our land, don't we? I'll tell you, I've never seen a day where life is so devalued that we want to kill, kill them in the womb. We stand there and we have people shooting each other. We have those that want to kill off all the elderly because they're a burden, kill off all the sickly. I mean, we have a real devaluation of life. And we see a lot of violence in our nation. Habakkuk also says that there's strife and contention. Mark reminds us in Mark 3.25, and if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Our nation, instead of seeking unity in American principles, is finding every way and every reason to divide. Whether it be over race, which we all are of one race, so that should be easy to fix, right? We're all of one blood. Just some have more pigmentation in their skin than others. That's all the difference is. Whether it be over gender, whether it be over or all these other so-called genders, I guess they call them, whether it be over, you, you name it, they're finding a way to divide. Even when you try to preach the truth, you Christians just trying to divide. No, we're trying to unify. And then he's crying, verse 4, the law is slacked. Judgment doth not go forth. God's law is not being upheld. Wrong judgment abounds. People who are doing wrong seem to get away with it. You know, it's amazing to me how many times reading the prophets is like reading the newspaper. Is it not? When men dismiss God's laws, they're left to their own wicked opinions of what is right and what is wrong. Now, let's take this a step further. So point number one, we saw the crying over the national sin, but we should be crying over the church's sin. Now, what do I mean by that? Habakkuk was crying over the sins of the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom. These people were the Jews, God's chosen people. Now, we are not a replacement of Israel as the church, okay? We are something different, right? But is the church not the institution that God is working through in this day and age in which you and I live? 
then should not you and I then also, as their nation was God's chosen people, can I say we are God's chosen people as a church? Can I apply that? Okay. Then when we see the sin in the church, should that not also cause us to cry? You see, the Jews were commanded to keep themselves pure and holy. So you and I are commanded to keep ourselves pure and holy. Let me just read a few verses for you. Romans 12:1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Ephesians 1:4. According as he hath chosen in, uh, us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame, before him in love. Ephesians 5:27, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Yet too often in churches, little petty things start to get in the way and people's sin is overlooked. Now it's amazing to me when you start preaching about the national sin of abortion and homosexuality and all these things, you get the amens going. But then when you start looking more personally at the church sin, you know, uh, gossip and backbiting and, you know, these things, all of a sudden the amens start to get a little bit quieter. They shouldn't because they're still sin against God, are they not? God does not take sin in the church lightly. Again, hold your place here in Habakkuk. We'll be back again, I promise. And go to the book of Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John in the New Testament. And then the book of Acts in chapter 5. A very familiar account, but I want to read it for you this morning and help you understand God was using this couple as an example of how serious he is about sin and purity in the church. He does not want sin in his church. He wants it a pure church. Acts chapter 5 and starting at verse 1, the Word of God tells us, But a certain man named Ananias and Sapphira's wife sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and keep back part of the price of the land? While it remained... Was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart that thou hast lied, not lied unto men, but unto God? And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost, and great fear came on all them that heard these things. And the young men arose and wound him up and carried him out and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours after, when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in, and Peter answered uh, unto her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yea, for so much. Then Peter said unto her, How is it ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which buried thy husband are at that door, and shall carry thee out. Then fell she down straightway at his feet, and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in, and found her dead, and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church, and upon as many as heard these things. Here's what happened. Ananias has a piece of land, and he says, you know, honey, we're going to go ahead and sell the land, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to give the church, we're going to sell the land for $150,000, but we're going to tell the church we sold it for $100,000, and we're going to keep back the $50,000. Now, had they sold the land for $150,000, and they said, we're going to keep back $50,000, but we're going to give the church $100,000, would there have been anything wrong with that? No. 
And that's what Peter even says. While it was yours, it was yours to do with what you wanted. When you sold it, it was still in your own power. But here's what they said. We sold it for $100,000 and we gave it all to the church as he's stuffing that 50000 in his back pocket. Now he did a good thing. He sold his land and he gave the money to the church. That's a good thing, is it not? But he lied about it. And you know what's funny to me today? Not funny, but sad, actually, is that people would say, well, that was just a little white lie. They didn't really need to know the whole truth. It's okay that he said that. It was none of their business anyhow. What does it really matter? You know what matters? He lied. And God killed him for lying. He didn't kill him for holding back part of the money. If he were honest about it, he would have lived to tell about it. God killed him for lying. And then his wife, who didn't know her husband had just dropped dead three hours later, walks in. Peter inquires of her. She says the same thing. She drops dead. That, my friend, is how serious God is about the purity of his church. And God gave us this example in the book of Acts to show us the purity of the church matters. And it amazes me how many Christians feel that they can dabble in sin and play with sin, and it's okay for them to do all these things, whether it be, you know, gossiping, whether it be backbiting, whether it be neglecting their Bible, whether it be neglecting church attendance, whether it be neglecting prayer, whether it be whatever the case may be, and I'm okay with it, but it's God. And it should break our hearts when we see the condition, you know, Look, folks, you walk into many so-called churches today, and it is no more than an entertainment center with a rock band trying to please people's flesh. That is not what church is all about. And we may be few in number, folks, but by God's grace, we're going to preach the Word of God here because that's what it's all about. But when we see the condition of Christianity today, People denying the authority of God's word. People denying the deity of Jesus Christ. People denying that God created this world. People denying these things in so-called Christianity today. Does it break your heart? Then what are we doing about it? Habakkuk, Jeremiah were on their knees crying before a holy God saying, Oh God, we have sinned. Because you know what? Okay, just as I applied it to the nation... If you're a born-again believer, are you not part of the church? If you're a member of this church, you're a member of this local body of believers, you're, you are part of this church. Does the church, does the sin in this church break your heart? What is our response when we see a lack of compassion for souls and we see false doctrine? Do we complain? Do we judge? Do we ignore or do we have the proper response of praying? And following Galatians 6.1, it says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. You know what that means? It means every one of us has a responsibility. If I see a brother or sister in Christ doing something in violation of God's word, that I have a responsibility to go to them in the spirit of meekness and confront them and say, brother, sister, that is sin. That is disobedience to God. And I'm not here to judge you. I'm not here to criticize you. I'm here to help you. I want to restore you. I want to help bring you back where you belong. Do we love each other enough to do that for one another? 
See, people say, well, I don't want to be confrontational. I'm afraid what they might say. Let me tell you something. I have never had somebody come to me and point out a fault in my life that maybe initially I get mad at them. Maybe initially I have a fleshly response. But when I stop and I think about it, I'm like, you know what? They loved me enough and cared about me enough to bring to my attention something in my life that I was not aware of. And I'll go back and I'll thank them for it because that takes courage. But do we have that kind of courage to go to one another and say, listen, if you continue on this path, let me tell you something. I've walked where you've walked before, if you have, and say, I know where that leads. And that's not a path you want to be on. But then let's take it even a little more personal. We should cry over national sin. We should try over to cry over the church sin. But let's look at verse 3. Why dost thou show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance? For spoil and violence are before me. And there are that raise up strife and contention. As he's looking at all the sin around him. I believe back it gets to a point, and it's not clearly stated in that verse, but we, it's a point we need to get to as well, where we confess our personal sin. Again, hold your place here in Habakkuk. Let's go one more time to Matthew chapter 7. And yes, I have you looking through several scriptures today, but I think it's important we see these for ourselves. Matthew chapter 7, please. Matthew chapter 7, in verse 1. Judge not, that ye be not judged. Now, everybody wants to stop right there. Don't judge me. Bible says so. The Bible does say elsewhere to judge righteous judgment, does it not? What Jesus is teaching here, that's an introduction to. Let's go to verse 2. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured again to you. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but consider not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam that is in thine own eye, and thou shalt see clearly to cast out the mote that is in thy brother's eye. What is Jesus teaching here? You see, he's not teaching... Don't ever approach somebody because of their sin. What he's saying, I'm going to pick on Chad today. Chad has a little speck of dust in his eye. You can't see it from there, but he does. And I have a two-by-four hanging out my eye. But I ignore this big two-by-four hanging out my eye. And I come over here and say, Chad, you got a little piece of dust in your eye. Let me help you get that thing out. As I'm beating him with this two-by-four that's hanging out my eye, right? Chad, let me get this little piece of dust out of your eye. And he looks at me and says, Hey, dummy, how about taking care of that big two-by-four hanging out your own eye before you come and try to take care of this little piece of dust in my eye? Here's the analogy. Why am I worried about the sin in his life when I have greater sin in my own? Why don't I take care of myself first before God? Then... Once I have the two by four out of my eye, I can use my good eye now to go help Chad get that piece of dust out of his eye. But I probably need to get that two by four out first. Right? How often are we quick to criticize others' sin when we are harboring sin in our own hearts? How often are we to go and try to offer help to one who's living in sin when we still have unconfessed sin in our own lives? What Jesus is teaching is before I can be a help to anybody else, I need to be a clean vessel. I need to have no unconfessed sin in my heart. 
I am so thankful for the words of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Aren't you glad that when I sin against God as a Christian, I don't lose my relationship with God, but I do break fellowship with God. And when I go and I confess that sin, I say the same thing that God says about my sin, which is what the word confess means in Greek. It's homo logos, saying the same words about it. When I confess it, God forgives me and we restore that relationship, I get this mo- uh, or my beam out of my eye, and then I can be helpful to another. Then I can go to Chad and say, you know what, Chad? I had this two by four hanging out my eye. I know how painful it is to have that little speck of dust. Let me help you get that thing out. And he's probably going to be more willing to listen then than he would be if I'm beating him with the two by four still hanging out my eye. I love the illustrations Jesus gave. Aren't you? They're wonderful. Because they're so obvious. When I examine my own heart, sins of laziness, sins of procrastination, sins of failing to read my Bible, sins of lack of a compassion for soul, whatever it may be in your personal life, when God points that out in your life, are you willing to acknowledge it and confess it to God? And does the sin in your own life break your heart as much as the national sin, as much as the church sin? Do you cry before God saying, God, thank you for loving me despite my failings, despite my sin, despite my wickedness. Thank you so much for loving me. Now, I'm not saying dwelling in the past of sin. But, you know, even as a Christian, I fail him way too many times. And, I, you know, instead of getting frustrated with everybody else, how about we start getting frustrated with ourselves and our own sin? And crying before God, realizing how weak and frail our own flesh is. When David was confronted by Nathan, remember David had not gone to battle when the kings had gone to battle. He was standing upon his rooftop, and he sees Bathsheba bathing, And instead of just going back inside like he should have, he inquires and finds out she's married. Instead of still listening to God at that point saying, she's married, I'm married, I need to stop this right now. He sends for her, he brings her in, he commits adultery with her. And then when she says, I'm with child, he calls her husband back from the battle, tries to get him to sleep with his wife. He refuses because he's such a, a soldier of integrity. So David signs a letter to the captain, basically saying, I want you to put Uriah in the front of the battle, and then I want you to retreat from him. And knowing the integrity of Uriah, hands this death warrant of Uriah to Uriah to, hand, to take back to the captain, and he takes it, delivers it to the captain. The captain fulfills the order. Uriah dies, and David tries to cover up his sin. For almost a year, we find David covering up this sin. And then God comes to the prophet Nathan. And I can just imagine Nathan with his big bony finger sticking it in David's face when he tells the story about the man who traveled and, and, and the man didn't take uh, from his own flock, but takes from his neighbor the one ewe lamb that he had. And David is so angry, he says, that man should die for what he did. And Nathan sticks his finger up at David and says, thou art the man. At that point... David falls on his face and confesses to God and he realizes the sin that he has done and the hypocrite that he has been and the wickedness that he has done and the death that he has created because of his choice to please his flesh. David realizes his sin 
And as a broken man, he pens these words in Psalm 51. David writes, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. According unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. He goes on in verse 7, saying, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Let me ask a question. When God points out the sin in our lives, do we have the broken heart that David had? Do we have a time before God when we recognize we have broken the heart of an almighty God? Let's go back to Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 4, and we'll look at our last point in conclusion. And that's observing the consequences of sin. Therefore the law is slacked, and judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass the righteous, therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. Doesn't it seem sometimes that the wicked triumph, and that they live life with no problems whatsoever? Jeremiah 12.1, Righteous art thou, O Lord, when I plead with thee, yet let me talk with thee of thy judgments. Wherefore doth the way of the wicked prosper? Wherefore are all they happy that deal very treacherously? Job said the same thing essentially in Job 21.7, Wherefore did the wicked live and become old? Yea, are mighty in power. And we see today where wickedness prevails, and we see exactly what Habakkuk is talking about. Judgment is perverted, calling evil good and good evil. People think that we are crazy sitting in church this morning, hearing the preaching of the word, believing that there is a God. They think that that's craziness and foolishness. They think we all need to be locked up for it. Some do. You think I'm crazy. There are those that think they would have you locked up for what you believe. Yet they believe that you can kill an unborn baby, and that's okay. That is perverted. We see the law being slack. Judgment not going forth for those who have done evil. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous, therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. But we need to remember with the psalmist in Psalm 73. Psalm 73, the psalmist points out the same thing that we often experience in our own lives. If I may read for you in Psalm 73, starting at verse 1, Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as our clean heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps were well nigh slipped, for I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And there are no bands in their death, for their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plague like other men. Therefore pride compass them about as a chain. Violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. They are corrupt. They speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walketh through the earth. Therefore his people return hither and waters of a full cup are wrung out of them. And they say, how doth God know? And is there knowledge of the most high? Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world and they increase in riches." Verily, I've cleansed my heart in vain. I washed my hands in innocency. For all the days long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. 
When I thought on this, it was too painful for me. I'm going to stop right there. This is what the psalmist is saying. Why does it seem like the wicked people have all the good things in life? They don't have to worry about finances because they have it all. They have the big car. They have the big house. They have the pool. They have, uh, they have all the things. And it seems like they never have any problems. And their life just keeps going on. But yet they're wicked. And here I try serving God. And the more I try to serve God, the more struggles in life I seem to have. Have you ever been there? This is where the psalmist is. But I want you to catch the next words in verse 16. He says, verse 17 rather, until... I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Surely thou didst set them in slippery place. Thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation as in a moment? They are utterly consumed with terrors. Let me tell you something, folks. It may seem like the wicked is prospering, but will only be for a season because God is still judge. God is still on the throne, and God will have the last say. And so you and I just need to be faithful to God because God will reward faithfulness, and he will punish the wicked. It may not be today, but today he is giving them time to repent. So instead of being envious of the wicked, rather you and I should be brokenhearted, seeing the wickedness around us, realizing unless they repent before a holy God, it will be much worse for them when they are damned to hell. So folks, let's take our eyes off of the wicked and stop looking at their prosperity and being envious and being jealous, but rather let us break our hearts and understand their end is an end of destruction. And unless they receive Jesus Christ as their Savior, that is where they're going to end in eternity is a place called hell. And you and I have the truth, and you and I have the power of God behind us, and you and I need to have a broken heart when we see it, and we need to get on our faces before a holy God and confess our sins, our personal sins, our church sins, our national sins, and then get up and be used of a holy God as a clean vessel to go to them and proclaim the truth and be as the prophets did, who, yes, they had times on their knees when they were crying, but then they would get off their faces, and in God's power, they would go and proclaim the truth, whether the people listened or not, and by the way, they did not, they would still proclaim the truth. And don't you and I grow weary in well-doing? Because one day, Jesus is coming again, and he's going to snatch his bride out of here, and you and I are going to stand before him, and he's going to reward us for our faithfulness to him. So don't worry about the world. Don't worry about the things of this world. Worry about being faithful to Jesus Christ, and let what we see in this world break our hearts and drive us to our knees and to a holy God, and let's beg God's mercy on this nation. Let's beg God's mercy on our lives. Let's beg God's mercy on our churches that we can see a great revival and see things turn back to the Holy God, because I believe it can still happen, don't you? Amen. Don't let our eyes be so dry. When Habakkuk saw the condition of his nation, it brought tears to his eyes. He cried because of the wickedness around him. And friend, yes, while we all get angry when we see the wickedness around us, let us pray that God would break our hearts and it would drive us to our knees. You remember in the book of Joshua, the account of one man who, after they come in across over the Jordan River, the first city upon which they come is the city of Jericho. And God told them very specifically how he was going to conquer Jericho. 
for six days, they were going to march one time around the city. And seventh day, they're going to march seven times around the city. And they were going to blow their trumpets and God was going to bring the walls down. But God had one requirement. The first city that they were to take, all the spoils belonged to God, not to them. You do realize every city afterward, they could take the spoils of the city. But the first city, the spoils belonged to God, not the people. One man by the name of Achan decided when he saw a wedge of gold and he saw a Babylonian garment, he decided, I am more important than God. My will is greater than God's will. He took the garment. He took the wedge of gold. He hid them in his tent. And when they went the first time to the battle of Ai, several soldiers died. Joshua now is praying before God because Joshua was like, Lord, what happened? It's such a small city compared to Jericho. We should have easily overtaken it. And God tells him, Joshua, get off your face. Get out there because there's sin in the camp. And Joshua lines them up by tribe. Achan's tribe is taken. They line them up by family. Achan's family is taken. They line them up one by one. Achan is taken. Achan finally confesses his sin. A sin that he thought, this won't bother anybody else. Nobody else would be affected by this. But yet, several soldiers have already died. But that's not the end of it. God commanded him to take Achan, his wife, his children, and all his possessions, and stone them with stones. We do not live in a bubble. I am tired of hearing, my sin doesn't affect anybody else. Yes, it does. Your sin affects others. Just as those soldiers died, just as his family died, not for their sin, but for the sin of Achan. You understand your sin does affect others. Therefore, it should break your heart, and we should be quick to confess our sins before a holy God. But people think, well, my sin isn't going to affect anybody else in my family. Yes, it will. My sin isn't going to affect anybody else in this church. Yes, it will. My sin isn't going to affect this nation. Yes, it will. Do you understand, Christian, why it's so important you and I are called to be holy before God? You say, well, preacher, none of us can do it. By God's grace, he can give us the strength. He can give us the victory over sin. You see, I was talking to somebody recently about this. Christian, yes, because we have a sin nature, we're still going to sin. But as a child of God, I should no longer be comfortable in sin. You follow what I'm saying? I should not be able to live in sin. I should not be able to have a habitual pattern of sin and be comfortable there anymore. And if I am, how far is my heart from drifted from God? I must keep myself close to him. I'm glad I don't have to wait to the end of the day to confess my sins. But as soon as the Holy Spirit of God brings it to mind, I can confess right there and restore that relationship. So folks, as we've looked at Habakkuk's cry, when's the last time you have cried over sin? Now, maybe today I've been preaching primarily to saved individuals, those who have a relationship with Jesus Christ, but maybe today you're here and you've never accepted Christ as your personal Savior. Maybe if I were to ask it this way, if you were to die, do you know for certain do you have eternal life? If you could not say no, I know that for sure then friend, I have good news. The Bible tells us that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And if you're here this morning and do not know Christ as your personal Savior, in just a few moments, we're going to give a time of invitation. And I'm going to challenge you to respond and allow us to take a Bible and show you from the Word of God how you can know for certain that you are a child of God. You can know for certain that you have eternal life. You can know for certain your sins are forgiven. If you don't know that today, I would challenge you. Christian, I'm also going to give a challenge to you. When's the last time you have cried over sin? If you say, preacher, it's been too long, then maybe it's time we humble ourselves before God. Stop being as the Pharisee who was praying to himself, telling God how wonderful he was, and be like the publican that was standing next to him, wouldn't even raise his eyes to heaven, but pounding on his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Let's bow forward a prayer.